True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. On the 17th of April, 2020, a man died of natural causes in Chris Harney Baragwanath Hospital. It wouldn't seem an incident that would make national news under ordinary circumstances, but it did, because of the man's history. The man's death marked the end of an era of legend, Robin Hood-like mystique, and some much darker secrets of a gang that terrorized and enthralled the South African public in the 1980s. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 49, The Stunder Gang. This episode is sponsored by Unsung Art. The COVID pandemic has had many casualties in terms of employment loss, and one of the positive things that seems to be coming from this is that more and more people are finding their entrepreneurial spirit in a bid to keep their families afloat. When Inga Bradley was retrenched in April 2020, she decided to put all of her efforts into a side gig she'd been running for a little while. Unsung Arts is an online art shop that features the work of local artists on a wide range of mediums, including clothing, paintings, photography and prints. The website is beautifully set up, and you really get the feeling that you're browsing through an art store with the range of options on offer. You can pick your subject, size, medium, and a price range that suits your pocket. Shipping is free within South Africa, and they can quote on shipping internationally as well. Unsung Art also offers special commissions for hotels, business premises, schools, and private homes. In terms of supporting local, which is something that is very important to me, you just don't get better than Unsung Art. I highly recommend that you head over to their online store today at www.unsungart.co.za and support a local entrepreneur and local artists. I'll leave that link in the show notes too. A huge thank you goes out to Unsung Art for their sponsorship. Before we get into today's case, I'd like to thank this week's new Patreon supporters. A huge thank you goes out to Karen Ward, Amy, Vicky Hart, Letumusa Kulube, Jack Fitzgerald, Lizette Gordon, Vicky Fomark, Fulmarie Buanzaya, and Maritza Annadale. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really is greatly appreciated. If you'd like to support the show through Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. I have just released a new Patreon-exclusive episode, and I do so once a month. We have two new ways to support the show besides Patreon and PayPal, and that is by purchasing the audiobook, The Krugersdorp Cult Killings, on Audible, and also by going to the King Online website and using the code TCSA10 for a 10% discount at checkout when you buy your health and beauty essentials. 
as always, any form of support is appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to helping the show to keep growing and improving. The case I'm covering today is pretty infamous in South African history. It's a story that both enthralled and shocked South Africans, and even had some cheering on this Robin Hood-like mentality. With elements of cops turned bad, bank robberies, prison breaks, and fugitives on the run internationally, it's a case that has all of the elements of an action movie. What people didn't see, though, was the dark underside of these individuals' crimes and how at least one of them definitely did not deserve legend status. In researching this case, I used the chapter from Rob Marsh's Crimes and Mysteries of South Africa, as well as several online open sources. So let's get into episode 49, The Thunder Gang. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Andre Stunder was born on the 22nd of November 1946. His father, Francois Stunder, was a major general in the SA Police Service and from an early age he started to mould his son for a career as a policeman. Stunder's senior would later say that he knew his son had never wanted to be a policeman, and eventually he would greatly regret pushing him into it. After serving his prescribed enlistment with the army in war-torn Angola during the border war, Andre enrolled in police college in 1963, and after graduating, started working at the Kempton Park Criminal Investigation Unit. It would later be claimed that after coming home from a high-paced and chaotic war, Stunder found the police service even more boring than he'd anticipated. Accounts of Stunder's performance in the SAPS would differ greatly. Perhaps to add more mystique to the legend eventually, it would be claimed that he had been one of the best investigators in the SAPS, a chip off the old block, so to speak. Others, though, like ex-colleague Chris Swanepoel, laughed at this, claiming that Stander had not even passed matric, and it was only through his father's influence that he was accepted to police college. Despite the fact that Stander would eventually reach the rank of captain, Swanepoel says of his investigative abilities, quote, Sure, he was captain of the police, but was he a brilliant detective? Rubbish, I say. When we were in the force together, he couldn't even catch a cold. End quote. Andre would meet his wife-to-be, Leone, in 1967, and they would marry in 1969. The relationship, for the most part, seemed tumultuous, and although we don't know for sure the reason that the marriage broke down, Stander's risk-taking behaviour and dissatisfaction with what the rest of us would deem a normal life could well have been the problem. 
the pair would divorce in 1969 after just two years of marriage. Stando would meet a woman named Pat Amos after his divorce from his wife. It would emerge much later that this relationship had resulted in a pregnancy and subsequent births of Stando's only son. The young man would only find out who his father was when he was 21. It's unknown whether Stando was aware of the boy's existence, but he played no role in the child's life at all. In 1975, Andre and Leone reunited and married. This second stab at happiness only lasted three years, and Leone left Andre in 1978. They were once again divorced the following year. It would be this, along with another major event in South African history, that would later be claimed to have contributed to Stander's crimes. In 1976, students from several schools in Soweto protested against the apartheid government's introduction of Afrikaans as a medium of instruction in local schools. The protests were based on the fact that, for these children, their already paltry education would be obliterated by a failure to understand the language they were being forced to learn in. It's estimated that about 20,000 students took part in what is now known as the Soweto Uprising. Surrounding townships stood in solidarity, and there were clashes in Tembisa, which would have been in the jurisdiction of Kenton Park Police Station in those days. That day would be a significant blight on South African history, with over 176 protesters, many schoolchildren, being gunned down by police. This is the event from which the iconic photograph of schoolboy Mbuyisa Makubo would emerge. The photo shows Mbuyisa carrying the limp body of his friend, 12-year-old Hector Peterson. The child has blood running from his mouth, and Mbuyisa appears to be seeking medical assistance for him. Beside them, Mbuyisa's sister, Antoinette, walks with her hands raised in surrender, and her face a mask of terror. Today we mark that terrific day in our history on the 16th of June with a public holiday called Youth Day. It would be these uprisings that some would claim had contributed to Stander's eventual actions. He was said to have been forced to gun down 20 protesters in Timbisa during the protests. Stander claimed to have been deeply scarred by this incident, which would be completely understandable if he was actually there. Police records show that Andre Stander was not present in Tembisa when the shooting took place. He had been safely back at the office. We will likely never know what had inspired Andre Stander to do what he did next. His career at the police was solid. He was flying up through the ranks. His home life was certainly not the greatest, but he didn't seem to lack for female company. Many would say that Andre was simply bored. Life was nowhere near as exciting as he wanted it to be. So in 1977, Andre Stander decided to start robbing banks. 
likely one of the most salacious details of this entire escapade, was that he would commit these crimes on his days off from the police service. He was smart enough to know not to, um, defecate in his own backyard. So instead, on his days off, he would board a plane to Durban and rob banks there. He developed a routine of sorts, donning a disguise on his arrival in Durban, hiring or stealing a car, and then hitting the targeted bank before returning or abandoning the vehicle and flying back to Johannesburg to return to his job as captain of the police. Stunder would be dubbed the gentleman robber for the calm and professional way he went about his crimes. He would hold the teller at gunpoint and give them instructions, then very calmly take the money he was handed and walk out. Stunder robbed at least 30 banks in the next three years, netting about 100,000 rand, which today would be about 4 million rand, according to the Inflation Tool Calculator website. Stander would later say that his first few robberies were very difficult, but after a while he really started to enjoy it. He likened his urge to continue as an addiction to the adrenaline. It's alleged that he told people he started to enjoy the look of terror on his victims' faces when he held a gun to their heads, and he would jerk the gun around to get a reaction. Stander also relished what he saw as his victory over the police, and how clever he was in fooling everyone. This would be Stander's downfall, as he simply could not keep his crimes to himself, and had to share his clever ruse with someone. In 1979, he invited his friend, Cor van der Winter, who worked at the Bureau for State Security, to join him in his crimes. He shared all the details of how he carried out the robberies and told van Deventer that if he joined them, they could make more money. In this conversation, Stander told van Deventer about a rental vehicle he had stolen and parked at the airport in Johannesburg. Van Deventer pretended to need some time to consider whether he'd like to be involved and instead approached a colleague for assistance. The two men went to the airport and located the car Stander had spoken about. If up until this point Van Deventer had thought his friend was talking rubbish, the contents of the car would confirm that Stander was in fact involved in nefarious activities. In the glove compartment of the vehicle, the two men found balaclavas, wigs and fake beards and moustaches. They also found a fake number plate in the vehicle and a roll of masking tape. The two men left the items untouched so that Stander would not know they'd been in the vehicle and staked it out from a distance. On the 2nd of January 1980, they witnessed Stander arriving at the vehicle and taking out some of the items. They now had proof that linked him to the stolen vehicle and the suspicious items. They didn't move in on Stander that day, though, as they wanted him to complete a trip and a robbery so that they could have irrefutable proof of his guilt. Stander flew out to Durban that day, and a bank robbery was recorded in Durban. 
on the 4th of January when Stander arrived back in Johannesburg. Police were waiting for him in the arrivals lounge. They arrested him and confiscated 4,000 rand that had been on him, as well as disguises in his luggage. Stander was taken to Durban to face 28 charges of robbery. During this trial, he claimed that he had become disillusioned with the police because he felt that he was used as a tool of the apartheid government. He further claimed that he couldn't leave because his father would disown him, so he used his crimes as a way to get back at the police service. This is probably where the Robin Hood-esque legend was born. And although we now know it to be a fabrication, Estander really was on a vigilante mission to steal from the rich and give to the poor. He must have forgotten about the second part. I find no mention of whether police were able to find the four million rand Stander amassed from his crimes, but his son would later jokingly say that if he could ask his father anything, it would be, where are the missing millions? Some sources would say that Stander would rob banks in his lunchtime and then go back to investigate the cases himself. While I can't say that this didn't happen, all the sources I found said that all of the robberies he committed were on his day off, and in Durban, not Johannesburg. On the 6th of May 1980, Andre Stander was found guilty on all 28 charges and sentenced to 75 years in prison. As the charges were to run concurrently, he would only be required to serve an effective 17 years. This should be where Stander's story ends, but perhaps solely because of where the prison authorities chose to remind him, it is not the end. In fact, it's just the beginning. Stander was sent to serve out his sentence in Zornavata Maximum Security Prison in Cullinan. Also serving time there for bank robbery and car theft were two young men, Alan Hale and Lee McCall. There is very little information about McCall's life before he found himself in Zornavata Prison, but we do know that he was an expert car thief. Alan Hale had sort of stumbled into bank robbery, after dropping out of college and then losing his job after suffering debilitating depression. When he found himself destitute and ready to be booted out on the street, he recalls walking past a bank one day and thinking about how all the solutions to his problems lay behind the teller's desk. He would eventually rob five banks in Pretoria before being arrested and sent to Zornavata on a 15-year sentence. In a later interview, Hale would say that he'd found the moniker Stander Gang amusing, because it all happened rather by chance, according to him. When he met Stander, he was working in the prison's foundry with McCall. Hale, at that time, was already putting together a plan to escape, and when he found himself becoming rather friendly with Stander, he shared his plan with him. Hale told Stander that the key to escaping was arranging some way to be let out of prison for another reason. He, for instance, had built his plan around his trade test that he'd be taking later that year, and that was when he planned to escape. Stander mulled this over and started to hatch his own plan. 
Hale says that when he heard that Stunder was going to break out, they agreed that they would meet up on the outside. Stunder's plan involved faking an injury so that he could be taken on weekly trips to the physiotherapist. According to Hale, McCall was never part of the plan, but he indeed would be by the end of the day on the 11th of August 1983. On this day, Stunder and McCall were part of a group of eight prisoners that were taken to a nearby physiotherapist's rooms, weekly, for treatments of various injuries. McCall had also faked an injury to join the group on their outing. Three prison officials accompanied the group. While waiting in the reception, Stunder and McCall suddenly overpowered the guards and took their service revolvers. They then took the physiotherapist's car keys at gunpoint and fled. The other prisoners had refused to take part in the act and stayed behind in the physiotherapist's rooms. Whether Hale's recollection of McCall not being part of the original plan is accurate or not, it certainly seems that it didn't take him long to convince Stunder to let him tag along. I think that perhaps Stunder was playing both sides here, He was making plans with Hale to coincide with his escape plan, and he was making plans with McCall to possibly work with him. Perhaps he didn't think that both men would successfully end up escaping, but they did, and he ended up with a gang instead of a single accomplice, which is possibly not what he'd expected. Stunder and McCall fled Cullinan in the stolen vehicle and about seven kilometres out of town they drove off the main road and entered a farm belonging to Martin Rickett. Seeing the car trundling unexpectedly up his driveway, Rickett called his teenage son to see if he knew who the visitors were. The nature of the stranger's visit became clear, though, when Stunder and McCall got out of the car and held the father and son at gunpoint. They forced Rickett to call the nearest police station and request that an officer be sent out to their farm for a minor and, of course, completely fabricated complaint. When the policeman, Constable Mostat, arrived, he too was held at gunpoint and forced to undress and swap his clothes with Stunder. Mostat, Rickett and his teenage son were then bound and locked in the back of the police vehicle which became Stunder and McCall's new getaway vehicle. I must say that this was extremely clever, and no doubt driven by Stunder's knowledge of police investigation techniques. They knew that police would be looking for them in the vehicle they'd stolen from the physiotherapist, and definitely would not be looking for a police van. As they drove further down the road away from Cullinan, though, the men may have second-guessed themselves as they drove along perhaps wondering how long it would take for either the Ricketts family to realise they were missing, or the policeman's colleagues to figure out something was wrong. So they pulled over again, and flagged down the next car that passed on the road. 27-year-old Naki Fushia was driving her silver-grey opal, and she would likely have had no qualms about stopping for a man dressed in police uniform and standing next to a police van. When she pulled over, Stunder forced her into the back of the police van at gunpoint, and he and McCall left in the woman's car. 
The hostages would eventually escape the abandoned van by kicking out the back window and flagging down a passing motorist. By the time they escaped, though, and police had put two and two together, the fugitives were gone. The pair laid low for several months as a manhunt for them ensued. It's believed that during this time they lived off some of the money that Andre had hidden from his previous robberies. They would eventually have two to three different safe houses in Johannesburg that they used to hide in. They would hire local sex workers to stand as lookouts, in case the police managed to track them down. It was during this period that Stunder committed two crimes, of a far darker nature. It would later be revealed that in October 1983, Stunder had posed as a fashion photographer and lured a teenage girl to a hotel room under the guise of taking photographs for a modelling portfolio. After taking several photographs of her, Stunder attacked the girl, raping her and threatening to kill her and cut her into pieces if she went to the police. Photographs of the girl would later be found in one of the safe houses Stunder used at the time. There was also another incident of a similar nature in which a teenage girl was raped. Sadly, these crimes would only come to light many years later, and Stunder would never face charges for them. It is a dark underbelly to Andre's Stunder that I think many forget, or perhaps don't know, when they regale themselves with the legend of the bank-robbing policeman. Andre's Stunder was not just a guy that robbed banks on his days off from the police service. He was a rapist, too. On the 31st of October, 1983, Alan Hale, who had remained behind in prison, was taken to Olifantsfontein Trade Test Centre by prison officials to complete a trade test as part of a study programme he was involved in. At 10.30am, Stunder and McCall burst in with handguns and overpowered the two guards present. When Hale describes this, He sounds almost surprised, like he hadn't expected them to really be there. They forced the guards and three staff members from the trade test centre to lay on the ground and then fled with Hale in a Ford Cortina they'd stolen from outside the centre. Within days, it was national news that Andre Stunder had formed a gang and the three men were on the run and ready to commit more crimes. Ten days after breaking Hale out, they robbed a gun shop, leaving with a haul of large-caliber guns and ammunition. This would be the first robbery in which Stunder had been involved where shots were fired, and although it's not known which of the three men pulled the trigger, the owner of the gun shop was wounded. The dynamic, it seemed, had shifted with the gang being formed, and violence could now be the order of the day. The gang, now armed with an arsenal of weapons, set out on a spree of robberies. Between November 1983 and January 1984, they robbed 20 banks, on one particular day hitting four in just a few hours. It's estimated that the spree netted the men just over 500,000 rand, about 20 million rand in today's money. The spree was unsustainable, though, and the men knew it. Stunder had come very close to being arrested when he'd been in a video shop in Turfentine, 
when it was coincidentally raided by police on a completely unrelated matter. He'd been trapped in the shop while police arrested the owners, but no one had recognized him and he managed to leave with the rest of the shocked patrons. On another occasion, he'd been recognized while eating at a restaurant, but he'd managed to escape then too. The men decided that their only option was to flee overseas with the money they'd managed to accumulate. Flying would not be an option as all airport officials were on the lookout for the three fugitives, so the decision was made that they would go by sea. The men started to look for a yacht to purchase. In January 1984, the trio started negotiations to purchase a yacht called the Lily Rose. Also at this time, police were starting to close in on them. CCTV footage of one robbery had given police good quality recent photographs of the three men, something they didn't have before. These were published on the front page of every major newspaper in South Africa, and suddenly it must have felt like every single eye was on them. In the interim, they'd managed to purchase the Lily Rose for a jaw-dropping amount of 200,000 rand. But with the heat now turned up, they no longer felt safe in South Africa and needed to get out ASAP. Stunder hatched upon the idea that if he offered the yacht which was anchored in Cape Town to an American seller, he may be able to actually make a profit on it. So on the 27th of January 1984, using a fake passport and disguise, he flew to Fort Lauderdale in Florida. With Stunder out of the country, South African police were starting to close in on the remaining gang members and with the help of the sex workers the gang used as lookouts, they managed to identify one of the safe houses the gang used in Houghton. At 5am on the 30th of January 1984, police surrounded the house in 6th Avenue, Houghton. With a loud hailer, they announced to the occupants that if they did not come out with their hands up, the house would be fired upon. Lee McCall was the sole occupant of the house that day, and he was not going down without a fight. Stark naked, McCall began to run from window to window, firing at police. Police returned fire and even hurled grenades at the house. Eventually, gunfire from the house stopped, and all was silent. On entering the house, police found Lee McCall dead in the entrance hall, the first member of the now infamous Thunder Gang, had fallen. With this, information began to stream in to local police. They discovered yet another safe house in Linmayer, and also learned of the purchase of the Lily Rose. The third safe house, also in Houghton, was uncovered soon after. This house was empty, except for a garage and a yard filled with stolen cars including a bright yellow Porsche. Stunder and Hale, though, were nowhere to be found. In Florida, Stunder had realized that it was going to be impossible for him to return to South Africa. After having heard of McCall's death, he knew that he would be arrested in no time if he didn't move. He purchased a vehicle from a local second-hand car dealer and was getting ready to flee the state 
when on the 10th of February he was pulled over by a traffic officer for driving an unlicensed vehicle. He was also found to be in possession of a fake driver's license. Stander claimed to be an Australian author called Peter Harris. What Stander didn't know was that just minutes after he'd left the car dealer with his newly purchased Mustang, the dealer had realised he knew Stander's face. Quite coincidentally, the car dealer had seen a news report that morning detailing the strange goings-on in South Africa and the report indicated that one of the gang had possibly fled to Florida. As soon as Stander, calling himself Peter Harris, had left, he phoned the police. As luck would have it, though, the information had not yet filtered down to the beat cops, and therefore when Stander was detained, all the police could do was impound his vehicle, photograph him and release him. Not one to take the impounding of his vehicle lying down, and likely having very little money left to buy another, Andres Stander broke into the police impound lot that night and stole his vehicle back. I kid you not, he was that freaking brazen. As soon as Florida police tied together the information and realised that an international criminal was in their midst, they sent officers out to his known address to arrest him. When police arrived, though, Stander was not home, but just minutes later, he rode up on a bicycle. When an officer posted outside the building tried to detain him, a struggle ensued for the officer's weapon. One shot was fired, and Andre Stander was hit. He bled to death in the driveway of his apartment block before an ambulance arrived. Now only one member of the Stander gang remained on the run. It would come to light that after the death of McCall, Hale had fled to the Greek island of Hydra. From there he went to England where he robbed a business of its payroll and then went to Spain. Hale was a bit stuck at that point though, as he had expected the payroll robbery to net him a lot more than it did and he now could not return to England to retrieve money and valuables he'd left there. Although he hadn't wanted to get back into any criminal partnerships with his last one having gone significantly sour, he had no choice but to enlist the help of a conman named Billy Williams to help get him back into England and retrieve his money. Hale's instincts had been spot on, though, and instead of helping Hale to retrieve his assets— Williams instead took as much as he could for himself, and then reported to Scotland Yard with Hale's whereabouts. He was arrested soon after at his girlfriend's home in Surrey. Hale was put on trial for his crimes in England, and in May 1985, he was sentenced to nine years in prison. When South African authorities became aware of Hale's arrest, they tried, in vain, to get him extradited to South Africa to face charges for the Stander gang crimes there. The British authorities refused to return him immediately, and instead said that when he came up for parole, instead of releasing him, they would arrange the extradition to South Africa. They kept their word, and in the mid-1990s, when Alan Hale was released from his stint in prison in England, he was immediately arrested by South African authorities and expatriated to be put on trial here. 
Alan Hale was the sole surviving member of the Stunder gang, and as such faced the music alone for all their crimes. He was found guilty of various offences, including theft and armed robbery, and was sentenced to 25 years in jail. No surprises here, they did not send him back to Zornavata. Instead, he served his sentence in Krugersdorp Prison. In 2003, a movie was released detailing the crimes of Andres Stander and his gang. The movie, named Stander, starred American actor Thomas Jane in the lead role of the police captain-turned-fugitive. On the 16th of May 2005, the Department of Corrections announced in a press statement that Alan Hale would be released on parole on the 18th of May 2005. The statement is quite interesting in that it sort of skips over the fact that he escaped, was on the run and then re-arrested and extradited, and instead cites his original incarceration date in 1977 as the start of his sentence, making it sound like he'd been incarcerated for 28 years, which is obviously not the case. I'm sure the Department of Corrections was not trying to fleece anyone, and perhaps they were just aiming for brevity, but I did have a bit of a giggle at that. Hale had served about 12 years of his sentence for these standard gang crimes, and according to the press release, attended and completed several courses to improve his possibility of rehabilitation, including emotional intelligence seminars, anger management courses, and a course called The Management of Change. When Hale was released, he spoke to the press, saying that he felt like he had wasted most of his life. Hale had assisted movie producers with information about their crimes for the movie, and much was revealed in that process that stitched together some more holes in the story. Hale, it seems, had emerged from prison a changed man, and he would spend his remaining years on the outside, travelling throughout South Africa giving motivational speeches. At one such event, speaking at the Free State Cheetahs Rugby Union, he met Peter Moller, who would become his best friend. The pair would travel together to schools, universities and business events, so that Hale could warn students and business people alike not to fall into the same trap he did and to be careful about their life choices. In 2018, Alan Hale released a book about his life, called Bank Robber, which he calls an honest retelling of his time with the Stander Gang. Sadly, I found out about this book too late to use it as research for this episode, but I will be reading it, and if anything stands out that I feel needs clarifying, I'll definitely do a follow-up episode. In one interview he gave around the release of this book, he says that there are many myths that have developed around the reality of what happened at that time. He also says that his biggest regret is that he wasted all of his talents and skills, and he has nothing to show for the entirety of his time on earth. On his profile page on motivators.com, the likes of Brian Joffe, ex CEO, and MDs and CEOs from Toyota, Investec, Protea Hotels, and many more, sing the man's praises, 
describing him as spellbinding, inspiring, and eloquent. He would spend the last 15 years of his life actually making a difference and touching many people's lives. He died of natural causes in Chris Haney Baraguanath Hospital on the 17th of April 2020. And perhaps this was a fitting end to the legend of the Stunder Gang, and I do salute Hale's transformation, but something still irks me about how the leader of this gang, Andre Stunder, is remembered in history. When interviewed, the producer of the movie Stunder described him as an incredible anti-hero for the people. They also included a recreation of the Tembisa uprising scene in the movie. To their credit, scriptwriters did not rely on media coverage and instead travelled to South Africa and interviewed people here that were involved firsthand. I know that it's very likely we would prefer to remember Andre Stander as someone who stood up to the man and took what he wanted, but I can't ignore the rapes. Yes, I know he was never found guilty of them, but he did have those pictures in his possession, and those two girls gained absolutely nothing from lying. I also can't forget that he told his best friend that he enjoyed the look of terror on the teller's faces when he held a gun to their heads. Andre Stander was not anyone's hero. In fact, I think he was a pretty disturbed guy. If he hadn't been overpowered that day in Florida, he very likely would have killed that policeman to get away. He had no concern for anyone other than himself. He lied about being traumatized by having to kill 20 young people because he knew he needed an excuse. Because there was no excuse. And there was no reason either. He was very simply driven by the sense of power he got when he terrorized people and I don't personally think someone like that deserves legend status. Circumstances may have made Andre Stunder's name famous, and his crimes infamous, but really, he was nothing more than a common criminal, and a sadistic one at that. I find it interesting that most documentaries I watched on this case threw in the information about the rapes as an aside and in the comments on many YouTube videos, people are divided, with some, with some even saying the rapes are irrelevant. Let us be clear about Andre Stander. There was evidence from two separate girls who told exactly the same story about his modus operandi, and identified him from a lineup. Photos of one girl were found in his house. In my opinion, there is no debate there is very little doubt that he raped those two girls. The real legends in the story are the people that he and McCall held hostage, the gun shop owner that was shot, the policemen, even his colleagues who took their commitment to serving public safety seriously, and even when it meant taking down their own friend, did what needed to be done. The real legends are those that were left behind to pick up the pieces of their trauma, and then to watch the man that haunted their dreams become a piece of South African history. 
it may have been inconvenient at the time, to tarnish a hot news story of bank robbery, high living and an international manhunt, with the disgusting reality of the rape of two teenage girls. But I think once you know better, you do better. So Andre Stander, you are no legend to me. Thank you for listening to episode 49, The Stunder Gang. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with the Spotlight Minisode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Mm-hmm.